This week on Flock of Seagulls, we watched The Glimmer Man, the only successful case study of broken windows policing on record. Michael? I'm Dylan. I'm Riley. Welcome to this latest episode. Uh, Glimmer Man, guys. Glimmer. Yes. What does Glimmer even mean? Why is he the Glimmer Man? It's, it's explained once or twice in the film, or maybe once in the film and once in the trailer. Okay. But it's never actually, it doesn't actually happen yeah, no. in the film, which is... He was known as the Glimmer Man because, according to Brian Cox, who, God bless his heart for starring in this movie. Not starring, but, like, just helping out in any way he could. And when he, when Steven Seagal was part of the CIA, people, he would attack them at night, his assassination targets at night. The last thing they would see is just a little glimmer. They would never, they wouldn't see him coming. They'd just see a glimmer, and then they'd die. How they know that? How that got back to the CIA, that it was just a glimmer, as reported by the dead people. They must have that technology that was first sourced in the wild, wild west, <laughs> where you can run a light through somebody's dead head, and uh, it will show you the last thing that they saw. I'm glad that was laid out for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I'm glad I'm on that page at the very least. Yeah. Uh, How that applies to this movie? Yeah. Not at all. No, not at all. Because there is at no point, is, is no, point uh, no point in this film is Steven Seagal stealthy. No. Or... Uh, Nor is he trying to be. Let's be no. fair. It's not like he's failing at it. I'd say this might be the first film where his physicality that kind of sold him in earlier films, it's kind of fading a little bit. Already. Because, like, I mean, those outfits that he's wearing, yeah, I mean, they certainly fit into his whole uh, getting in touch with uh, Tibetan Buddhism and all that stuff. But at the same time, I mean, they, they hide his figure. And I mean, he's not quite as a limber as he has been in previous films. Just to get back to what Dylan said for a second. Yeah. If I went to go see a movie called The Invisible Man. Oh, boy. Throughout the whole film, people talked about how he had been invisible in the past. Yeah. But he was completely visible through the film. Yeah. I might be disappointed. Bit of a plot hole, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I was expecting a little bit more glimmering. He, though, I mean, that seems hard to believe because he's like a big guy, right? Oh, yeah. So maybe this is is a general uh, like stereotype, but I don't know. I feel like assassins kind of have to be like smaller characters, you know, like a little bit like he's just a big lumbering figure. It doesn't really seem like he could be a glimmer man. Oh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Like you could take the word glimmer in a lot of different ways. That's could true. could be the glimmer of like a muzzle flash, Ooh. you know, like it, especially like within the context of like you know, let's say a sniper rifle or something that like mm. the bullet travels so fast that you would see the flash before you'd actually hear the bullet and that you'd be on the ground because the bullet would be traveling fast enough speed of sound. So it's honorable in that he always shoots them from the front. Sure. sure. These are spicy hot takes. <laughs> yeah. 
I get what your beef is, but also uh, I think they I'm not just even like, saying it's a beef. I'm no, just saying. no, I know what you mean. I don't know. I think a lot of it is just the word glimmer was just like, ooh, let's well, get glimmer in the title. I think one thing with like the the whole like explanation of the meaning of glimmer man, you can't help but think they just added that because they didn't want people to infer that the glimmering was his glimmering sequined outfits. Right. Because, I mean, you know, you see the trailer and you're like, ah, he's a fucking Glimmer Man because he looks like, uh, you know, someone remade a Diana Ross dress. Yeah. Well, this is something we should get into is we have this okay. is our third podcast. We have dealt with three very different eras of Seagal. Yes. It, yes. it was first Seagal given up. Although, yes. you know, give us another 20 years of this podcast. Hey, I feel like giving up right now. Hey, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, then we had his very beginning where he had probably very limited choices over anything. This is probably post just his high in Hollywood. Yeah. And so Seagal has obviously in all, most of these scenes chosen his own outfits. Yeah. Yeah. He is a former CIA agent as he is in almost every every film that we've covered it's, thus far. I think it's in his contract. Yeah. Gotta be former He's, CIA. Former CIA, uh, but then again, a cop, which feels like a little bit of a downgrade, although this was before the war on terror where he could have gone to like Halliburton or something like that. And now he sort of, he is a Tibetan Buddhist cop who just wears, who's really into Christianity too, for some reason. Yeah, (laughs) some weird religious stuff. Yeah. But all of his outfits in this film are sort of... The things that shopkeeps in Chinatown put in their windows to convince tourists to come in and buy. And it seems like he just went through and was like, oh, these are all perfect. I want to show how in touch I am with the country that controls Tibet. And so I'll put these on. And it is uh, it's it really adds a little bit of flair to this character who otherwise doesn't really have much of a through line in this film. Yeah, I was going to say uh, if if there's anything good about those tibetan prayer beads it's that uh they kind of give him a very convenient out to beat a guy up or like it seems like a lot of scenes are triggered by someone making fun of them you know that's i'm glad you brought that up because like there is a lot of making fun of Seagal in this film yeah like even not not even just from bad guys taunting him Mm-mm. but i think one of the cops says something about his sensitive ponytail or something and then yeah. keen ever wayne's always like there's that whole gimmick about him making fun of the uh, Chinese missile stuff. And I mean, that kind of comes around full soaker because we found out later that he got the like rhino horn or whatever. Let's back it up. Let's back it up. Let's sorry, go sorry. chronologically. Sure. Let's do this. All right. Opening scene of the film. Is it the cop station? Kenai Avery Waynes? Is that the opening one where he's going through? And I think so. People I have are no in- idea. Open on bustling police station. I'll be honest. This movie is like a soft breeze through my brain. Yeah, it was so easy to watch. I understand what you're saying. Like, there was no challenging points. Like, in previous films, like, there was no, let's juggle three different layers of a conspiracy in our heads. Yeah, it was at least coherent. I'll give it that. This was very, very strange. Actually, if we are starting chronologically, we should start with the opening credits, who bear a striking resemblance, uh, albeit shittier, of course, to the credits from Seven, which came out a year before, and, like, 
the similarities between the two, like in like you don't really see it because you're locked into Sagal mode. But like the more you think about it, you're like, wait a sec. This oh, I thought that immediately. It was oh, a, yeah. quite a seventh ripoff. Yeah. yeah. But this is all- interesting in that he, he Sagal is emerging as a knockoff auteur. Like yeah. he's yeah. able to yeah, insert sure. himself into whatever's popular just like a well, year I mean, afterwards. The guy does get his break on like a basically a reject. Clint Eastwood script so I mean <laughs> what do you expect but also yeah I mean I got the seven thing right away because it had the religious iconography of seven black white mismatched duo exactly uh, it's uh, raining all the time raining all the time uh, which the, they bring up multiple times through the they film. do yeah yeah, yeah yeah and you know the funny thing is it's raining all the time but it never really seems like dark and foreboding in the way that it does in in seven like in the, in in uh Glimmerman, it almost seems like like they're trying to make it seem like it's a rain machine on an otherwise sunny day. Cause in seven, it's just like, it's this like oppressive hellish landscape. But I found in glimmer man, like it's raining, but it never really seems like you're going to get wet or it's that cold or anything. It's just like, well, I think the thing is like in seven, it was directed by a man who will do 70 takes of a person saying one line just to get it exactly perfect. Whereas you don't get the same sort of level of craft in this film. I would True. say the glimmer man. And yeah, it's only raining when it's very convenient for it to be raining. The rest of the time, it's very sunny yeah. because, I mean, this is Steven Seagal just post-peak. He and he, you know, you listen to Keenan Ivory Waynes, his uh, very game partner. He really saw this as like a launching vehicle, I would say, to go like he the fight scenes that he's in are very like they're better than Seagal's fight scenes. Like he's he's ready to be an action leading man. This film doesn't do him justice, just as Pam Greer didn't really get any justice. Yeah, I was about to bring up how it's ironic that uh, Pam Greer, like a very, very certifiable ass kicker at the making of the first movie, uh, really got no fight scenes at all. At Keenan Ivory Wayans, like a comedic in living color expat, like somehow gets all these, yeah, like gets all these like crazy fight scenes and it's like why didn't you have to pam greer and this guy could have just been your talkie guy but he gets a couple good scenes yeah it's he's definitely got the best scene in the movie it's his apartment explosion yeah yeah Yeah. i live at that okay but let's chronologically movie opens with a seven sort of creation of uh someone writing in a journal someone doing everything that happens in the beginning of seven yeah then cut to a police station, a uh, a Los Angeles police station, very now, busy, bustling. You know how I hate to bring up these small plot point things that I think are kind you of... You do nice. not hate it at all. <laughs> Fair enough. So I noticed that they kind of open with it with just sort of like a really off-putting thing, which is that so they have all these like graphic crime photos that they're flashing through the credits, which is done with this exposure effect. But then when it cuts into like the real part of the movie, you see a guy just in like the general like waiting area slash interrogation area of the police office just hanging up these gruesome crime photos <laughs> on like a like a post in the middle of it and it just seemed like they don't really do that i hope like they don't just hang up hang in there kitty <laughs> they just don't hang that stuff up and like they're like you know oh while well, you're here uh you know testifying based on personal experience they definitely don't yeah like it just seems like really uh in bad taste yeah be doing that like while we're asking you about that parking ticket you want to look at this mutilated corpse they definitely keep the uh, nasty corpse shots under wraps. Mm. Yeah, they don't keep. They don't the show main... it to the people who are double parked and no. coming in to pay things. No, you seem like the sort of deviant. That M- could Manila folder at worst, file cabinet at best. Yeah, just saying. It it, it, it seemed a little uh, off-putting to me. Yeah, 
Uh, so Keenan Ivory Waynes comes in and we, it's like a tracking shot through the office of, uh, the LA, whatever this LA precinct office is. Yeah. And it immediately establishes that he is well-known and well-liked. People are yelling things at him. People are like, ah, you owe me money, you fucking guy. And, uh, his friends from Boston were down just to yell at him. Like there is a lot of just, uh, (laughs) there's a lot of camaraderie around him in this office people hand him folders it's 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 a very sort of west wing opening mm. and then um he goes into the office of his new partner i guess it's never really spelled out and he sees this tibetan motherfucker <laughs> prayer beads around his neck yeah i mean i guess we could start with the i guess basic crux for me of this movie which is is he tibetan what no. what's he what's he playing in this game? Is he just As a white a, guy who's a that, fond admirer? Again, it's explained later on. Oh yeah, yeah. that's true. Explain it. It's fine. Should we leave it as the exciting cliffhanger to this episode? No. What is it, is it explained his ethnicity in this film? Yeah, I don't really. I have a very like. I mean, they never specifically say he is Caucasian, but they do say that whole thing about him working for the CIA and then uh, him going quote like off the reservation and going native. And that, like, he started studying with a, like, Tibetan holy man and stuff like that. So, like, I think that, like, in terms of Seagal's obscuring of his past and his uh, uh, culture and his uh, ethnicity, that, like, this film actually, there's a little bit of honesty to it. Because they, they do specifically say that, like, he was in this country as a foreigner and that's where he picked this stuff up. As opposed to like, a, maybe he actually was born in such and such a country. Is that what they're trying to pass it off as? I think really? So, yeah. Holy really? Shit. Yeah. I mean, I didn't really uh, put that together because oh. I, I don't know. There just seemed to be a lot of like, I don't know, police jive thrown around, which, you know, is kind of half makes sense for the most part. Um, so for me, I don't think it really came off as like he was foreign. Like it just came off like he was like a. Well, he admirer. can't be He worked for the CIA, right? Yeah. He was. But I yeah, mean, he it raises a question that like, do, they, do you think they were trying to say that he was Native American at one point, which is why he went off the reservation? No, no, no. no. That, that's just a phrase. Like, going, yeah. going Native, they just mean that, like, you weren't following protocol and you're just, like, doing yeah. it. Like, kind of like a like Colonel Kurtz thing, you know? Like, Anyways, Gene Ivory Waynes is so blown away at seeing a six foot four man, <laughs> six foot four Caucasian man. Wearing a wig with a ponytail at the end, and uh, very, very. I what is the best way to explain his clothing? Like, like, like a, like a sh- shaman or something? Like, no, more like, uh, oh god, like Fu Manchu. Yeah, like, like one of the bad guys from Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah, I didn't want to like, like one of the spell demons. it out too much, but just kind of like stereotypical what a white guy thinks an Asian dresses like idiocy. Yeah. yeah. Which, in a weird way, kind of makes it really funny because he's a white guy. Right. <laughs> so it's like that. But, which they don't play yeah. up enough in the film. Well, here's what I was going to say, which is that I think that this movie was a lot funnier because Keenan Ivory Wayans is a funny guy. And, like, it's a funny cast overall in terms of what it's trying to go for, I guess. But anyways, I feel like Steve Seagal kind of wanted to make it more serious. It's, you know, it's hard to say because it's yeah. like he does try and drop a lot of jokes. Which, like, having Keenan Everwayans in the film makes perfect sense. That, like, you know, he'd want to either keep up with him or he'd want to be able to riff with him. But it's also, like, 
one of his darker, more gruesome films. Yeah. Because it's about this serial killer butchering families. And this is the film that he decides to be bebopping, scatting all over the place. And so it's just like, what the hell? Like, And the other thing that I guess is confusing to me is that, like, he seems to only be game for self-deprecation for, like, a very specific allotment. Yes. Which is what I was sort of thinking of with the clothes, which is like, you're right. Like, we could have seen... uh a lot more scenes of him sort of being self-deprecating about his clothes. But I almost feel like somewhere in the making of this movie, Seagal is like, no, no, no more jokes about my clothes, okay? I'm very seriously into this stuff. <laughs> and while well, everyone on the cast sort of just rolled their eyes. <laughs> but, uh, okay, so Keanu Ivy Waynes uh, comes in the office, is shocked to see someone who is so outside the traditional bureau norm of what a police officer, a homicide detective is that he has to go back and check to see who the name of this officer is just to make sure it's his actual new partner. And we see for the first time, this is something that I do. I do like because it is something that comes up again and again in this film. And it's a nice uh, sort of follow line through our last podcast, which is Steven Seagal has finally found something to do with his hands. And the only time he's awkward in this film sort of with his body placement is in this first scene where he has been instructed to stand up and lean on a cabinet. That's all he has to do. But he sort of like waves one hand one way as if he's like giving him a high five and then he pulls it back and then he goes and he does a little spin and then he finally rests his arm onto a file cabinet because he's six foot four. He's a huge guy while talking to Keen Ivory Wayne. It's about, oh, you know, uh, you know, uh, I'm a. I'm a specialist from New York who has been brought in and he doesn't care. He doesn't give a rat's ass about the credit about how this thing gets solved. He just likes to see the bad guys come to justice. That is this guy's MO and he spells it out immediately. And then he does the Steven Seagal sort of hand gesture, which I think is all he does for the rest of his movies from here on out, which is just sort of rests the two hands folded over each other on his belly. And it completely dissipates all the awkwardness, especially when he's dressed up like a white guy who thinks this is how I have to dress to go to China, which is he 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 looks like a very very mobsterish pose. Mm. Very Mm. like, you know, I've just made you my final offer. Yeah. Yeah. Or almost like a a like faux contemplative like Buddha pose. Like, oh, think about the enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah. I I just really found that uh, in that sort of introduction it really laid out Keenan Ivory Wayans as like the star of this movie whereas like Steven Seagal was going to be like the partner he had to deal with mm. and uh I feel like that kind of that's an interesting was point. where that movie should have gone to a certain degree yeah. G- kind of the way it probably was originally written because apparently if you read up on it this movie was originally 114 pages and had a lot more uh conversations sort of between the two partners and you get that this was more of sort of like a buddy cop. We're trying to see how far this goes up to the top sort of thing, um, as opposed to how it must have been rewritten, which was one of us is now part of the CIA. And I got to figure out more about this guy. Guy who wrote this also wrote Constantine. Yes. <laughs> Real winners. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that can be said about Keenan Ivory Wayans in this movie is that he really gets, again, that sort of Pam Gurr shaft of having a lot of things kind of set up for him that are not delivered on at all mm. that I thought would have been fun to see. Like, the one thing that kind of annoyed me was that they had this scene. I guess this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm hoping it's not too far ahead. But 
he's sort of doing his introduction ride through the car with his partner. And uh, I think they're going to like a slaying scene. He's talking about how he wants to know stuff about his family. You got a family or what? Yeah. And he's like, I don't want to talk about my partner. You know, my partner doesn't need to know all this stuff about my family. Hey. But then the entire movie base is based on the fact that Keenan Ivory Wayans has to go back and like dig into this guy's checkered past when he himself at this very early scene in the movie is like, I don't want you knowing anything about my past. And I thought it would have been like a really good sort of thing if then Steven Seagal could then be like just through his own sick curiosity, be like going through, you know, every way in his past and find out something bad in his past. And I feel like that was set up to happen and it just never did. And I feel like that might be something that was cut. That's true. And the thing I love about that first. So once the once the two of them meet in the office, then it's straight to the uh, the car ride scene where the two of them are talking. And the thing that struck me most about this is this was such a like this is i don't watch a ton of action films especially from this time period where it's sort of these cop procedurals would have been like really really popular but this is the exact sort of thing that true detective the first season really really nailed was this Mm. sort of like good cop bad cop we're not really sure we're pretty ambivalent on each other and you can see exactly what they're going for on this thing and you can see how you know ivory wayne is a super game for it he really wants to be like ah you know I don't tell you this sort of stuff on the first day. And Seagal keeps throwing these like sort of schlocky one-liners at him. Someone should do supercut of those. I never thought of that as like an important scene in the certain subgenres of movies, but there's a lot of uh, things that will come up like that. So uh, like you have like movies like training day where like they have like that sort of scene. I'm trying to think of another good good example. Seven, you know, like they all have those sort of introductions. I like to see them all cut together. Yeah. Because this one definitely, it doesn't work and it just doesn't work because of the lines that you can obviously tell that Steven Seagal has tried to sort of force into this film. Kind of canned him. Which is like the only reason why this guy is sort of pseudo-mystical all from, you know, uh, Asia maybe and was sh- showed up in Tibet before he was disavowed by the CIA and then came back as a as a star police officer. Um <laughs> Is in these sort of like little little snippets of information that you get, and um, I appreciate that they buried all of that convolution in our imaginations, and it didn't just have to dump a bunch of exposition out on screen. That was a really good improvement in this movie. There's not a lot of just like land explaining in rooms, yeah, especially given the similarities in that respect to Above the Law. Yeah, where it's like really similar because like it, it starts mm-hmm. off with like a fairly simplistic crime story, yeah. and then all of a sudden it's back around to some crazy CIA yeah. thing. And that's one thing I was thinking. I was just like, "This is just like above the law. Like, what happened to our original story? And why are we? Where are these CIA <laughs> yeah. guys come from? And what about the serial killer?" Yeah, because that's the interesting thing. Is like the first twenty minutes of this film set up a really interesting plot. That is sort of it. Then after that is really, really squandered. Like it's yes, it is derivative of seven, like right. almost completely. But it could have been. I kept thinking during the first twenty minutes of uh, of the film, like this could have been an episode of Hannibal. Yeah. So like, I guess we can just fill in those twenty minutes real quick because I honestly don't think that those beats need to be paced out scene mm-hmm. by scene. So they arrive at this crime scene. Uh, they're looking at this sort of gruesome killing of this couple in a hotel room, and there's like. 
you know, they're all being killed the same way. This like weird crucifixion thing. But Stevens have barbed wire around their yeah, heads. Yeah, yeah. They're nailed with like a nail. They look gun like Christ. The they look yeah. like Christ on the cross, but on a hotel room wall. And like those scenes for what I was expecting going into this film are well done. Yeah. And yeah. like the, they're appropriately gruesome. And it looks like in that hotel room, I don't know if they ever touch on it, but it looks like there's a drawing of like a mommy and a daddy car that's all done in shit. No, like no I think it's just more blood. Is it blood? I think it's, it's, a, blood. it's a very, very deep. Yeah. Could be shit. We can't we can't rule that out. Yeah. So uh they they basically stumble well not stumble, they are at this crime scene and then Steven Seagal through some weird intuition, which is not really explained, just sort of goes like this isn't the same guy. This is like this is somehow connected, but also not the same guy. And there's just sort of like, ah, is it you and your stupid beads you come up with that? Yeah. And there was almost like this implication where like, haha, you're just being a jerk, but also like, maybe. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing that I loved about it was just I kept trying to think how would because the rest of this police department seems to be fairly sort of on the nose, sort of good police department. But like, imagine if David Simon had to write Steven Seagal's character in this oh film into the wire. Yeah, like <laughs> people will have just mocked the shit out of him. Like this, this police officer doesn't actually exist. No. And, uh, you know, we can also sense that most of the police department thinks that he's a complete ridiculous figure like which is good and also something that we don't really get in other films that we've watched of his is yeah yeah all these sort of mystical leanings that steven seagal has this is the first time we've seen them sort of called into focus and people are saying that is stupid and bullshit and oh you still want to take them during an interrogation uh a polygraph test yeah whatever do it it's not gonna make any difference which which is the only scene where he's wearing a suit and tie <laughs> which I thought was a funny he's like dresses oh. up for his life yeah yeah polygraphed I, polygraph I gotta take this shit seriously unlike yeah. my police work Pol- police work we're gonna go with gold sequins yeah uh, I also noticed that in a lot of those early scenes where he's setting up the dynamic with Keenan Ivory Wayans there's a lot of Ham Greer stuff too where he's like sort of setting him up himself as like the counterpoint of like I need a cool partner and my cool partner has to be super like fun and uh, into a bunch of one-liners and like all this sort of crazy crap. And I got to say, Keenan Ivory Wayans, he really delivered. And it oh, made yeah. me wish oh. that Keenan Ivory Wayans got more of a chance. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I thought that was one of the interesting things in that film is he sort of stays that one archetype. And not just a chance. Like, I mean, like a chance in terms of not beyond this film, but also like in his career. Like, yeah. I thought like he did a really good, like as that, that second comic guy in. Yeah. Which yeah. I'll also note, is part of the reason why I don't think this movie works quite as well as those other buddy cop movies, because there is a certain dynamic between like the white black partner and the really good ones, like, uh, like Beverly Hills cop or something like that. There was yeah. the black guy leads. And I feel like if you had made Keenan every way in the star and Steven Seagal, the supporting guy, I felt like this movie would have been actually pretty great. Well, one of the things that I think really ruins this film is the fact that they did cast Steven Seagal in it. Um, <laughs> but because one of the things is Steven Seagal has no idea who his character is supposed to be. And it really muddies the water because after the first 20 minute mark. Uh, so let's go through a couple of things after the uh, sort of they they see the crime scene. Then they uh, go to the morgue or the mortuary where they're. Okay. Oh, yeah. that's quite a scene. That's yeah. gross. That scene is fucked uh, up. Implants. Yeah. This is interesting. So the two of them go to check out the the dead bodies afterwards. Yeah. 
And there I almost is... want to glance over the scene because it really holds no bearing over the movie, but it's also like, oh, it's twisted. It's really twisted. Oh, no, it's it's a great, it, it's one of those great, it makes this, the first 20 minutes of this film great is this scene. Yeah. It's so weird and so specific. Yeah. And that is what we really dig into when we look at Steven Seagal's films are these weird specific like these are in there for a mo for a reason sort of yeah i know like i just mean it in the sense of like the first half hour of this movie let's face it is all just about the guys bonding right like making them seem like they're legitimate duo which is how most of these buddy cop movies go right the first act is setting them up as actually having some sort of emotional connection but yeah it's peppered with like two maybe three Depends on if you count that uh, scene in the uh, Chinese sort of herbalist shop. We'll get to that. We'll yeah, I know, that. I know, I know, I know, I yeah. know. But like, it adds like that weird twist to this whole thing. So it's interesting. The boys are in to investigate or to get the what are those? I'm just doing an autopsy. Yeah, what are those doctors called doing the autopsy? Are they? It doesn't matter. Go on. Anyways, so. But I love that the guy that they got to be the doctor in-house when they come, because this guy clearly didn't have any lines at the beginning of the film, <laughs> and then was just told to play off Keenan because the two of them are always in frame, and so they can have whatever reactions they want to whatever Stephen Skull says. Huh. So you can tell they were filmed in very different ways. And he gets a couple good one-liners off after Seagal says something about sort of like, uh, oh, the, uh, this is just a body. The soul escapes. So this is just a husk sort of thing. Like it's a when they're looking at one of the victims of the lay serial killer who is crucifying people. Keenan Ivory Wayne says, "Okay, so what is uh, what makes you such an expert? And then he says, well, she's probably Russian, most likely from Georgia, two different countries, first of all, both part of the (laughs) Soviet Union, I guess. But if you're going to eventually get Russian citizenship, you should probably be more clear on those sorts of things. And then. In one of the only scenes of like Steven Seagal giving something back to Keenan Ivory Wayne's in sort of like a bonding relationship, uh, he says, "Well, uh, what do you think about her?" And he goes, it- "Nice tits, yeah, <laughs> good, good stuff, good stuff, yeah." Uh- and then Steven Seagal says, "Yeah, a little too good." Takes a scalpel <laughs> and off camera desecrates the body just to prove him wrong. Yeah, pulls out the tit. Or pulls out the silicone, yeah, the the implant, yeah, yeah. and finds a a serial number and says, "Run these, <laughs> run these tits for me." <laughs> yeah, can I get a serial in these? Tits? Some crime dramas run fingerprints. Seagal runs tits, and yeah. Seagal has blown away both Keen Ivory Wayne's his partner and the guy whose job it is to figure out these sorts of things. Because this woman was unnamed before Steven Seagal was just like, "I know these tits aren't real." Yeah. That was really disturbing. Uh, I feel like I should just say that off the bat. In addition to, I think, what is overlooked is just the disturbing thing of a policeman saying nice tits to a corpse. Mm. That's fucked up. (laughs) An extremely, like, primal level. So, I mean, it's a good one-liner, but it's also like, what the fuck? (laughs) See, that was one of those things where I was just like, okay, I like this because Keen Ivory Waynes is clearly so used to his job that he's just like, uh, it's a dead body. It's living sort of thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's a dying <laughs> episode um, title. You should um, just host your podcast alone. That's <laughs> amazing. Oh, if I had access to a mirror, I would. Can I Can I just take a bold leap of faith and just get, I want to really get to that herbalist scene. 
that's my like that's that introduces two things that I really thought were great about this movie. So I don't think is there anything in between that's really worth getting into? Okay, so the two of them then it's sent off to lab, blah, 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 blah. Then there's just, yeah, it's a little bit more bonding between the two of them. And it, it, yeah. it's a, a Chinese uh, apothecary yeah, that yeah. Steven Seagal knows. The, it's the again one of those it. things where it's how a white person imagines these places yeah. are, where they just have like, you know, bulk barn bins of weird things. And Man. it's the first appearance of our friend that we'll get to know throughout this movie. Yes. Uh, Mr. Boom Mike. Huh. Mr. Boom Mike makes a couple of cameos <laughs> in this one, doesn't he? <laughs> I wanted to get to, first of all, we're going to get to all this like stupid like understanding of Chinese apocalypse. But there's a recurring theme where they talk about how Damon Wayne is like a tough guy and doesn't cry during movies. And the movie that they keep cutting to is... Uh, um, Keenan Ivory Wayne's? Yeah. What do I call him? Damon. Dana oh, Ivory Jesus Keenan? Christ. <laughs> I'm sorry, Keenan Ivory Wayans. <laughs> I won't do that again to you. Um, <laughs> Just restart with Keenan Ivory Wayans, and then it makes it for an easier edit. Keenan Ivory Wayans uh, will get into uh, sort of this whole spiel about how he doesn't cry at movies and things like that. And, an interesting little wrinkle. Yeah. And I didn't make it out in the first viewing, but then when he's in the theater, it's pretty clearly spelled out. It's Casablanca. Yeah. Which is, I don't know, I find that as just a film guy, like, that's hilarious. <laughs> like, this uh, this movie sort of references just Casablanca. It's like, this is a movie that makes that guy cry. It's just like, it's as if you've seen one classic movie. <laughs> it's beautiful, because in this film, they go into this Chinese apothecary. On the TV in the background is Casablanca, which must be super cheap to get the rights of in 1996. Otherwise, yeah. they wouldn't be showing it in there. One, two, he goes to see his favorite movie in the world at a local cinema later that Steven Seagal catches up with. Three, when the fire in his apartment happens, it burns up a shit ton of Casablanca-only movie posters. Yeah. He loves playing Casablanca. So again, He's the so guy like, who's like sort of the classic film buff if you yeah. can only see one movie. Yeah, that's what I was He's thinking. He's a desert like, island man. He lives his entire life. What if I could only see one movie? So I'll get into like a really stupid like Room 237 sort of like observation that I had, Good which movie. is that when I paused uh, the movie and looked at what was actually on screen, I thought it was Ingrid Bergman kissing Gregory Peck. So... If you don't know, the only movie that Ingrid Bergman and Gregory Peck in were Spellbound, uh, that Alfred Hitchcock movie that yeah, Salvador yeah, Dali did all the yeah, sets yeah. for. And I had not watched the thing in full when I paused this scene. And I was really hoping that it was coming up that the movie that makes him every cry every time is Spellbound by Alfred Hitchcock. Because that's not even like at any point in the movie trying to be a tearjerker. It's like this weird psychoanalysis movie. But I wish that that was kind of true. But then I saw it was Casablanca and then it took on this other level of like, oh, well, fuck. But then when you write about the memorabilia, then it took this next level of like, oh, my God, this guy's like mental for Casablanca. So it really was just really odd to me. I mean, I loved it because... I mean, it's 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 Chekhov's movie poster. You can't introduce a movie in Act One huh. that doesn't pay off. Like ah, two ah. minutes into Act Two, oh man, it's so bad. Yeah, it really is. But also, I don't know. I mean, it's such a nice wrinkle to introduce to this character, and then to pay it off yeah. as like 
this weird sort of, oh, this is a guy who only likes Casablanca. Blanca. What, what, one thing that I had a difficult time trying to figure out, I guess in terms of like the point of introducing that whole thing within the context of like uh, like audience sympathies or I guess maybe even more specifically for like the action genre, like the, the male viewers, uh, I can get behind this guy. Is it like, is it supposed to be that like Casablanca is such a profoundly pussy film that it is going to supersede uh, ponytail, prayer beads, uh, sequined uh, floor length uh, coats, and that you're going to be like, it's, it doesn't matter that Keen Ivor Wayans is this cool ass motherfucker. He's into Casablanca, so that trumps everything. No, I don't. I don't think it operated at that level. I think it was much more like it's it was actually one of the more brilliant things about the movie. And that's kind of why I focused in on it, which is it started as this non sequitur, which is the classic masculine thing of like, oh, you cry at movies. Oh, you're such a baby, you know, that sort of thing. But then it ballooned into them him going to see it at the theater. So it's like a callback, like, oh, look how much he likes this movie. But then it ballooned again. (laughs) And it's even crazier thing where it's like, oh, my God, this is like the only movie you ever have any love and adoration for but one of the interesting things about this and one of the things that made it so seriously Seagal for me was that this was kind of like a moment where Seagal's just like he first comes up to him and says hey you know crying is good for the soul it yeah. cleanses it it makes it all uh better yeah and beautiful then, stuff 30 seconds later Seagal is chuckling that he made his partner eat deer penis let's then. talk about the powdered deer penis <laughs> Now, I'm not an expert on these sort of things, but that just seems like such a low blow for a movie that's trying to, like, sort of pay respects to, like, this, like, supposed Tibetan slash, like, mystical Chinese culture. It also introduces one joke that only pays off once in a really terrible way, which is Keen Ivory Wayne's is allergic to to incense. Stupid, stupid joke. He's allergic to incense. That scene serves no other purpose. It serves one other purpose when he goes to interview the Maybe some dope school. weirdo pot smoker hippie type who basically seems like she's trapped like 20 years ago. Yeah, but man, uh, oh boy. Yeah. And, um, it, yeah, it just serves to set up one joke in the movie. Yeah. But the, well, actually two jokes after the deer penis is the only thing that survives in Kina Ivory Wayne's yeah. apartment. Yeah, you're you're right. Like the the whole like Chinese herbal thing. Like it, it seems like it's like it's like Segal's uh like classic uh obsessions or interests or whatever. But like, it seems like it's it's undoing all of that because it, yeah, it, like, like like if it really he does. if he actually you know has any respect or knowledge or whatever of these things. He wouldn't stoop to that. Yeah, like, like, why would he include something, first of all, that is, like, completely erroneous? Second of all, it's introduced in the film for the sole purpose of showing how stupid all that Chinese dumb herbalist shit is. Yeah, they're eating deer penis. (laughs) But this is the craziest thing about the film, is that Steven Seagal can't choose a character to play. Because... At a certain point that we're coming up to, probably the next scene, if we skip ahead... uh, What's you talking about? Willis, where Steven Seagal is a man who abhors violence, and then uh, within yes, the next yes, breath, uh, yes, has uh, killed three uh, men. Yes, the, the best part is that that's in the trailer. And he's like, I can't do it. And he's like, You should have told me that before. That it's so good. It's crazy. This is and Steven Seagal keeps doing this thing where like 
you can't really tell who his character actually is because there is Steven Skull ad-libbing that he thinks is hilarious. And then there's what's actually written for the character. And you can see where those two things clash because it happens literally in the same scene. But wait, there's the other character, which I'll just briefly mention now, but I know it's going to be a nice meaty chunk for later. Uh, his sympathetic character, which is uh, decidedly the least developed of the three when he has to tell his kids about how their mother has died. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, oh. Okay, so this is... Let's rush to that, but fill in the gaps. <laughs> Fast forward. Perfect. We're there. No, go ahead. So he gets, he gets into this fight with three guys. It's basically just our introduction Does to... Does that happen after the funeral? No, because we haven't even seen them dead yet. He shows up at... Okay, so they get into this fight. He shows up at a crime scene. Uh, there's another, been another slaying. It's announced at no point in the scene that he actually knows the people that have been killed, which turned that, out to be that, his ex-wife. It took me a sec to figure that one out because I was just like, yeah, because yeah. there's no, there's no, there's no visual cue in the movie to indicate like, oh fuck, I know this person yeah. when he actually stumbles upon the corpse. It's not until like he goes back to the station or no, he goes back home to yeah, his wife to the yeah, one shot with his wife because his ex-wife who uh, been killed. Yes, right? yeah, and he says a, a beautiful thing, which is just like. I don't know how I'm going to tell the kids that their mother is dead. And yeah. It's like, the nice thing is there's no heavy handed music cues like there would have been in uh, Hard to Kill. Is that yeah. the first one? Yeah. yeah. Above uh, the law. Above, above the law. Um, but just, I had to rewind it twice to just see like, because he says it in such a Seagal way, which is, I don't know how to tell them that their mother is dead. Yeah. Like, it's just such a underhanded delivery of these things. And it's the only shot of the kids in this film. And it's also him just sort of introducing the idea of like, okay, I'm going to go tell my kids their mother's dead now. Please, please begin cry prompt. Like, it's just like such the other thought on this scene is, okay, his his uh, his ex-wife and her husband are dead. He has to go tell the kids where were the kids being stationed? They must have been at a grandparent's place if they weren't at either one of the good point. Uh, Anyways, doesn't really know. Because he's like dating this new wife now. I think they're living with him as he's the father and she's the mother. So he comes in and doesn't greet any of the kids. The kids are never on scene. No. It's just him. Yeah, it's pure just incompetence. You're reading way too much into this. (laughs) The kids are his kids. So the kids are just off screen. Basically, the stepmother of these kids now are the the only person looking after these kids. And Steven's Call's just there to come on over and tell them, Mom's dead now. Like, I really was, like, wondering if they are going to ADR, like, hey, kids, your mom's fucking dead now. Like, sorry to hear <laughs> tell you about that. Like, I, it was really just, like, the stupidest setup to what should be, like, a most, like, the core emotional centerpiece of the movie. If you I mean, one of the great things dead. about this film is the ADR again, which is in this, in this yeah. movie, it is a lot of extra punchlines on top of a joke nah. that make the first joke not land anymore. This one was, de- it was definitely a budget thing in this one. We had <laughs> doubts about the first one about, oh, maybe they didn't know what ADSR was. Mm-hmm. No, this was like, no, this is like cutting costs. There are a ton of scenes where somebody is saying something off camera to make one joke seem funnier just by piling on another joke. Oh, wait, we we completely skipped over the... The school kid with the gun. Holy yeah. shit. Oh, yeah. That's the whole crux of the movie. Yeah, it, because uh, that was necessary to tie in the CIA stuff. Yeah. Uh, 
<sighs> okay. It's such a stupid scene. Like, I know it is technically important to the plot, but it's just like, oh my God. But it also tells us a little bit more about Keanu Ivory Wayne. So, Stephen Skull, Keanu Ivory Wayne are going across the streets of LA looking for homicides, which I don't think homicide detectives do, which is just cruise around waiting for yeah. calls for homicides. Anyways, a call comes over the radio. There's a suicidal teen over at a local high school. Uh, Stephen Skull says, We'll get it. Keanu Ivory Wayne says, No, we're not. And he goes, uh, why not? And he goes, we're homicide. We're not suicide. <laughs> and Stephen Skull tells him a huge big thing about how, you know, he doesn't care how the body leaves the, or how the soul leaves the body. It's all, it's all death in the end, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Very, very mystical. Very, very entertaining. Uh, Stephen Skull then disarms this kid by the first of many breakthrough windows in this yes. film. Yeah. Which is a uh, tackle. And the way he actually did it was kind of clever. The way he's the way the scene is set up is kind of clever. So there's a kid in the classroom who has a gun and he's threatening all these kids, right? Then Steven Seagal calls up his partner, Keenan Ivory Waynes, who's in uh Steven Seagal's just outside the classroom. Keenan Ivory Waynes is down where they do announcements, feeding the cell phone that Steven Seagal has called into the intercom that's coming through all the speakers. This kid is told by Steven Seagal to go look outside the window because uh, Steven Seagal is out there and you'll see that he's unarmed. Then Steven Seagal bursts through the door, guns drawn, immediately puts down his gun, like within seconds of getting the drop on this guy, completely nullifies his advantage against this uh, kid. And then blah, 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 jumps through a window. Luckily, this is one of those schools that has the budget for several separate buildings connected by like overhead bridges. <laughs> and so they jump through one window, land into a separate building, crashing through two windows. Kid turns out to be the son, the stepson of a billionaire. Go figure. Billionaire comes down to the scene of the crime, says, thank you for doing this. I thought. Thanks for tackling my son through two pane glass windows. Steven Seagal makes a few offhand remarks about, uh, apparently they got the wrong therapist. Uh, like just <laughs> therapy doesn't therapist. work. Stupid. <laughs> Giving up your mind to a woman is the worst. And then ridiculous says, I'll never help your son. I'm just, I just want to do what's absolutely right. Like it's a, it's actually kind of an interesting moral philosophy for this character to have, which is, he doesn't want those kids to die, but also he doesn't want to help the kid out in any way by no. saying that he was mentally ill at the time or whatever. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess you pretty much summed it up. I don't like that scene because I just felt like it was just it was just another one of those scenes. And I'm, I think this is what I'm going to get tired of first, which is just affirmations that Steven Seagal is a badass scene, which just feel like <laughs> which just, there are many. Yeah, like just feel so fucking grating each time. Like he'll just like. Like, I get it, Steven Seagal. You're a badass who knows how to fight. Like, that's why you're the main star of this action vehicle. But it does lead up to our next big plot point, which is the billionaire sends his henchman to go see Steven Seagal and says, hey, you know, our kid is going to be looking to go on bail and uh, to try and get off for reasons of insanity. Can we count on your testimony? Here's the interesting thing about that scene, which is that that guy is basically trying to bribe a cop in the middle of a police station. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That seemed a little, uh, again, this police station apparently is very loose morals. They put up like crime photos and now this guy's just bribing a cop in it. It and felt very Steven brazen. Se- Steven Seagal says, 
get the hell out of here, white man, before I kick your ass. Raising yeah. more questions than it actually He answers. did say that. And Ooh. so the billionaire son who lives in, it looks like the same place that the rich guy in Blade Runner lives in, like that ah, super tower. With it is. Corporation. If I can make a small sidebar recommendation, uh, there's a documentary called Los Angeles Plays Itself, oh. and it goes through all of the sort of landmark architecture that has shown up in the Blade Runner type movies, all these movies that are shot in Los Angeles and how it's basically a love letter to the set locations of Los Angeles. And yeah, that is most definitely that building. So what is this building? Oh God. I don't remember what specifically it is. I think it was like, unfortunately it, it's, it's story doesn't expand beyond just a weird art deco period in Los Angeles. Cause I can in the see how, in 1996, it reads as very like a rich person's building. Yeah. In 2017, you're like, who, who is carving yeah. out marble? And yeah. then like, and then in 1980, it reads as vaguely futuristic. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's almost certainly that building. Oh, why it's there is probably because of the fact that uh, those buildings kind of build a name cachet, and probably because of that, it was probably just a cool set to rent because it was probably not super cheap to rent there. And, you know, when you're thinking rich person's house, it's just any obtuse building that seems expensive really works. And I feel like once that movie was in or that building was in Blade Runner, kind of dropped the overall value of it. You know what it is? It's it's Deckard's apartment. Yes, that's what it is. It's Deckard's apartment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so I think in general, it's probably just a cheap place to shoot that also looked kind of cool. Yeah. For the for the simple and it does look very cool, yeah. but it looks super out of place. Like, yeah. it looks like this, whoever this character is, is not just a very rich man. He's a billionaire. I don't know if that's what they were trying to come across. Anyways, billionaire says, hey, this low-level cop, not doing what I want. Let's tell the Russians that I have on retainer mm-hmm. to go kill him to see if they're really worth their money. Mm-hmm. And that's when Keenan Ivory Waynes and Steven Seagal are drawn into a fake police call by right. three very nice-haired Asian men who are unarmed. <laughs> the the percentage of uh, armed bad guys to unarmed bad guys in Seagal films, it's like uh, it's like all of the criminals that uh, happen to appear in his movies all come from either the United Kingdom or Canada, where they just have to share one handgun among the entire gang. Mm-hmm. And he just happened to get lucky that the other gang really needed it for that weekend, and they didn't sign it out. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is that uh, there's, like, this really weird, awkward exchange between the gentlemen. <laughs> like, they're yeah. sort of just like, why are we here? <laughs> and they're just kind of, like, standing there, like, what? Oh, yeah. We're not here. And then these Russian guys sort of emerge from the the chasm of this weird, I don't know, was it like a garage? Something like that. Or like, yeah. yeah, it's like a another one of those like Seagal, like uh, uh, shady working class yeah, factory. Is miscellaneous it a is industrial it a, space. Yeah, yeah. Where, where, Let's go with that. Yeah, this is where all the, the seedy things happen in a city. Yeah. It's like if you've got working class people and you've got uh, those doors that you have to pull the chain to open. Yeah. Bad shit's happening. Bad shit's sure. happening yeah. in there. Yeah, but I mean, that scene in general, aside from just uh, like we've got the introduction of the bad politician or no, he's not a politician. He's just a rich guy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, bad rich guy. 
uh, and his influence on the city. But like all rich is, guys, yeah, he has political connections. Yeah, so that scene essentially is just a chance for them to do more bonding and yeah. kick some butt and deliver a couple uh, C plus one liners. <laughs> one thing I will say is that uh, the first, again, this is still in the first 20 minutes of this film, but one of the things that I loved about it is uh, Los Angeles really feels like they shot in Los Angeles. Like there, there's good. a That's really good. good yeah. There are some really good lived-in sets in this one where they have to go uh, to take on these three to take on the fake uh, distress call. Is one of those sets where it's like they couldn't have planned this better. This is obviously just a place that they rented, but it's throughout this film. Whereas the last one was probably shot in Chicago. And it's like, there's nothing you could tell me about that place that makes it memorable in that set. They probably didn't even film it there. Uh, and same with contract to kill, which was, we're taking place all over the world, but we're also in just one lot shooting yeah. it all. Yeah. And they do make a point of it being Los Angeles because there's this whole thing, which I didn't really get where they're talking about how like he's from New York, which I guess really only connotates the whole stereotype of like a French connection esque New York cop. Doesn't yeah. really play by the rules, but also I thought it was funny how they sort of pitched it as like this is in New York, this is Los Angeles. Like yeah. Los Angeles is like as big a city as New York. Like what the fuck are you talking about? And they make points about how <laughs> he is a he's a New York cop who's come out here by himself, and it's just yeah that doesn't really come together until the end where it's like are cops supposed to come over in pairs to new departments? Like why? Why also they were? It to- seemed to me like they're trying to pitch it as like. Oh, you know, New York's the big boy cop city, and this guy's stepping out to Lou, Los Angeles, yeah. to lend a hand. It's like, this is Los Angeles. This is a gigantic city with a gigantic police department. It was also funny how, like, all of the, uh, like, wacky things that uh, draw so much attention uh, associated with a Scal character, they seem like such L.A. things. Yeah. But it's just like, he's into Eastern stuff. He's into New Agey stuff. He's yeah. into Buddhism. Like, how is it a New York thing? Yeah, that's, no, that's I the really classic like. Yeah, LA I stuff. never noticed that, especially since so much of the movie is how he's supposedly like a fish out of yeah. water in the department. It's like you're right; yeah. those are far more he, he's stereotypically one, LA things to be into. He's one step away from uh, being vegetarian and doing yoga. It's yeah, just like, you know, <laughs> oh, I wouldn't be a vegetarian though. He's not a fucking pussy. <laughs> uh, well, he's, uh, you're right. that's too far. I, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Right. I just have to stop over here for a second. I got too many feetings in my body. Yeah, uh, I don't really know if that uh, really came across to anyone making the movie. But, uh, I mean, nothing really does with any Steven Seagal movie. Um, But they go on to uh, basically, after they've, I guess, killed these people. Okay, well, let's let's deal about that for a second. Because this is the first major contradiction about this character. Is Steven Seagal says, I I don't fight anymore. Yeah. And then, so... And it's like, in terms of beats, it's he and Ivory Wayne says, uh, help me out or something like that. Uh, Steven, and then he gets smashed in the face and Keenan Ivory Wayne drops to the ground. Uh, Steven Seagal has just said, I don't fight anymore. And then after seeing that, draws out a credit card. He goes, do you guys, because <laughs> Steven oh, Seagal's so doing good. this funny sort of like, who's on first bit where he's like, I can pay you double. And the Russian mobsters who've come out with assault rifles say, yeah, or what are the guns that they use? MP5s? I don't know. Oh, I forget. Anyways. They Gun. Say- <laughs> they have guns, and uh, Steven Seagal sort of entices them into conversing with him by saying, I can pay you double. And they're like, 
and he goes, I'm going to take my, I'm going to take my wallet out of my back pocket. And he makes a big show of showing it. And he goes, do you guys take cash or credit and holds up a discover card <laughs> and Stop then- discover. Pushes out something in the Discover card. Turns out it's just got a, a, a secret blade in it. Slashes three people in the throat. Eh, eh. They instantly die. Like two beats after Seagal says that he doesn't fight. Mm. Yeah. Do you think Discover was happy with that branding? Oh. <laughs> Worth a card that slits Russian immigrants' throats. <laughs> Man, that must have been... I don't know, 96 might not have played itself. If it was like above the law era, that might have worked. Yeah. <laughs> At least it's not uh, in 7. True. That's true. Yeah, uh, the 7 comparisons were also interesting because I think that uh, this movie, I think if we can nail anything down, it had a hard time making up its mind over what tone it was going for. Oh, God, yeah. And I think that it really, those two things are what separates this movie and 7, which is that 7 has a very consistent tone. And I'll confess, I'm not a big Seven fan. Like, it's not like my favorite thing. Um, but it also has a very consistent, uh, disgusting, drab, sure. sad, upsetting tone. Sure. Whereas this movie's all over the place. Like, there's scenes of light comedy. There's scenes of horrific murder. There's yeah. scenes of like emotional tellings of children that their father <laughs> or their mother has been murdered. Um, there's CSI light, you know, kind of stuff. And it really just feels all over the place. And I think. If anything, that demonstrates just how important a consistent tone yeah. is in movies. Because you're right, this and Seven are very similar, except for the fact they're they're tonally just all over the fucking place. Yeah, and most of that comes from Steven Seagal himself, which who is all over the place in terms of a character. Whereas Keanu Ivory Wayne's, I have to give him a ton of credit for this film because he he knows he's supposed to be sort of the funny black guy cop in this, but. He keeps it all within sort of the wherewithal of what a cop would have. Whereas Steven Seagal, I think the next big scene is he realizes that there's been a hit put out on him. First of all, Steven Seagal impales at least two men in this scene on things. Yes. Uh, yeah. And that becomes a theme <laughs> running through this movie. Uh, well, it's just love of Christ. Impaled on things in like a very, very disturbing way. But... um goes and realizes that it's his boss from the CIA who's probably setting him up with the Russian mafia, goes to visit him in a Chinese restaurant? No, yeah. Italian. Super Italian, Italian. Italian. Super Italian restaurant. Starts off, and this is like seconds after. Might be the most tonally confusing moment of the movie. Seconds after Stephen Skull has said, I'm not a violent man. He goes into this restaurant. This guy is on the phone trying to take a reservation. Takes too long, so Steven Seagal slaps him, tells this guy, come over whenever you want, slams down the phone, <laughs> goes to the back uh, of the restaurant where Brian Cox is there, and God bless Brian Cox <laughs> for being in this movie. Fun fact, uh, you know Brian Cox was actually replacing, at the very last minute, Tommy Lee Jones yes, yes. in that role. And Tommy Lee Jones in that movie, I feel like, when they say it on very short notice, Tommy Lee Jones were replaced. I feel like Tommy Lee Jones picked up the script and went just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Brian, get in here. <laughs> what have you signed me up for? Yeah. I'm not doing this. Fuck this. And then they got back to the producer and producer's like, oh, uh, Brian, Brian Cox. Come here. Come but here. <laughs> it's perfect, though, because Brian Cox plays a mustachioed. Brian Cox, the 
uh, incredibly well-known, or at least distinguished Scottish actor. The original Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. True. Manhunter. Yeah. Plays a distinguished southern gentleman slash head of the CIA, or at least sort of part of a, a CIA, big CIA Yeah. He's meeting with a senator, and obviously Stephen Skull can't go back to the restaurant. Can't go to the back of the restaurant while there's a senator meeting. So one of the aides comes out and says, hey, you can't go back here. Stephen Skull drills him through a window. <laughs> the senator is like, I should probably leave. <laughs> Stephen Skull talks to... And this is a really odd scene in the movie, if you remember, because anytime Steven Seagal is talking, Brian Cox is very silent because he's sort of like listening to, oh, I've got a misguided protege, blah, blah, blah. Anytime Brian Cox is talking to Steven Seagal, Steven Seagal's either talking or doing something on the table. Like at <laughs> some points, he's just like, oh, you fucking idiot. Like he's just giving like little sides, which were obviously added in post and then uh, like a very yes. poorly done. Or then there's one scene where Brian Cox is just telling Steven Seagal how, like, you've crossed with the wrong people. I'm surprised you're doing this. You should come back in the fold. And Steven Seagal is taking a red napkin underneath a plate of bread that has been delivered to the table. And he's taking it, and the bread is spilling all over the place. And then Steven Seagal tucks it into his (laughs) shirt. And then, and then, in the very next shot... The bread basket is completely back into place and the napkins underneath. But Steven Seagal also has a napkin tucked into his shirt. I notice this. It's it's ludicrous <laughs> just in terms of ed- like editing. And it's one of those things where it feels like that was probably Steven Seagal's just like, my character probably doesn't listen to this guy as he's uh, yeah, talking. Sure. So I'm going to reach around the table to everything I can grab. Sure. Here's the salt shaker. I want to grind some pepper. Are you still talking? I'm going to rip some bread out like yeah. a magician. It's crazy. And it's terrible because Brian Cox is bringing up this movie to uh, sure. to a whole new level. Yeah. Um, and then, I mean, what can you say after that? He comes out and the same aide to the the same aide to the senator has comes back and says, hey, if you ever say that to me or if you ever do that to me again. Which is, again, Steven Seagal threw him through a window. If you ever do that, if you ever pull that shit on me again, what does he say? Like, shit's going to go down or something like that? And then Steven Seagal says, oh, you know, I got something that could really clear up that bruise on your forehead. (laughs) And you think there's going to be like a deer penis joke coming. And the guy goes, what bruise on my forehead? And then Steven Seagal punches him in the head. Oh, so good. And then... Another scene of six people throwing themselves at Steven Seagal so he can just tip them into various sure. pieces of furniture. And then the best bit of sort of Steven Seagal not acting as a character and also not acting as Steven Seagal, but Steven Seagal acting as Steven Seagal being funny is the phone rings and uh, he picks it yes. up and he goes, uh, we're close to renovations. <laughs> Try calling back in. And then he pulls them phone down and he looks around the restaurant after he's completely decimated yeah, yeah, yeah. with tiny Asian men's bodies he goes two months <laughs> and then he leaves and it's not like the same sort of Buddhist prayer beat sort of guy going it's like it's a complete asshole that you could see someone like um, uh, Eddie Murphy pardon Eddie Murphy yeah it was like a very see- Eddie Murphy kind of thing to do or like Charles Bronson or like Dirty Harry yeah yeah Okay, I have something for you, Michael. Yeah. Mr. Uh, 
big, big uh, Seagal apologist over here. Yeah. Uh, so I've watched this movie. Yeah. And I've watched Above the Law. Yeah. Again, this scene, I'm sorry, but the fight scenes are very unimpressive. He really just throws people into furniture. When are we going to get to him actually like this hand-to-hand combat full-on kicking ass? Well, I mean, I guess the thing to consider is that like, uh, like we're looking at all this with the hindsight of like it having taken place so long. ago. You know what I mean? I guess so. But also like I can sincerely point to like movies from the 70s with like Hong Kong sort of like martial arts. We're like, that's some badass shit. Whereas he just feels like he's just all his all his fights seem very stagey and then like very like well I mean I mean we're going to get to a scene where he throws somebody stuff. into a, a a cage of doves that fly yeah out. like I mean it just comes off as like I would honestly if unless I knew all this stuff about like uh, his previous training I would not go into this and think that this guy had any sort of actual martial arts training he just seems really good at countering and then throwing them into something that will break. I don't think anyone uh, like watches Seagal films because they're uh, a, like a stunning example of uh, martial arts technique. I think it's more just like uh, martial arts combined with just like unapologetically uh, machismo brutality. I, th- I think it's it's mixing those two things because it's like you know like you you, you can watch something like Crudge Niger Hidden Dragon and it's just right. like you know amazing and it's like choreographed and it's just like like uh you know it's like this ballet of violence but this it's kind of like you know it's not just like two meatheads uh, in a, like a slobber knocker like you know he's doing something that's mystifying people but at the same time it's just like cracking one liners breaking limbs you know like what he's doing isn't uh like an amazing display of technique it's just like he's found that sweet spot where like you can understand how this is fooling bad guys even though it's like fooling dummies but i mean that's that fits perfectly with his character because he's supposed to be smarter and better than the bad guys that's fair i guess the thing that i found a little i don't want to say disappointing because i didn't know what the fuck i was getting into with this but (laughs) Uh, the whole thing of like if he's the American equivalent to like he brought martial arts to America sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And if he's the poster boy for bringing martial arts to America, he's a pretty bad poster boy because he like I think you went over it last time. Like is it Aikido? Is that Aikido, right? Yeah. yeah, it's it's a defensive fighting style, right? Yeah. So like it's already not really built for but the one good hand hand combat. Most of those fight scenes are shown as Steven Seagal on the defensive, and that's a good point, especially within the context of this film, where like yeah. it's less of him like uh, being the aggressor. That is the only of, like, thing that I don't want to hurt sort of you. Credence, if you pull one of the legs around and then turn it around, but um, yeah, and then there's also like at the end of the film. Uh, he's he fends off many more attacks than he actually throws, which mm. is it's it's interesting and it sort of fits with sort of who Steven Skull wants to be in this sure. film, but not with anything else that he actually does, which we should probably keep going on about. We spend so much time on things. We should probably just say the Russian mob tries to kill him and Keen Ivory Wayne separately. Yeah. Uh, King Ivory Wayne gets a good fight scene like that an actual fight scene compare that to yeah. any fight scene that Steven Seagal in this sure. thing does where King Ivory Wayne's obviously uh, whoever was choreographing this 
says this guy's more of a cop. He's just more of sort of a boxer or something like that. Yeah. And it comes off as like a real, there's kinetic energy in yeah, his And scene. he's loving it too. Yeah. Like you can tell Keenan ever wins. He's super yes, game for it. I'm into it. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like almost part of the Seagal downfall is that he, um, he doesn't really seem comfortable with the idea of someone actually like punching him back. Or, like, sort of being anything close to, like, a fair fight. That's very true. One thing that... It never happens. He, he's, yeah. he never faces adversity. Yeah, so I think that's, that's... one big thing. Yeah, so that's, like, a detriment to his fight scenes, though, because I think good fight scenes have this sort of give and take, where, sure. like, the guy's getting decked out, but yeah. he comes back and he takes a... Where Steven Seagal really doesn't seem to want to stoop to that, yeah. and it kind of makes his fight scenes come off as, like, stale or boring. Yeah. Like, I think in this film, he gets a bloody nose. I think yeah. that's the yeah. extent of his injuries. Yeah. Like, that Keenan Ivory Wayne's apartment scene is fucking great. Like, that's the best scene in the whole movie. And, yeah. like, if it was more of that, I'd actually be super down for that. And the thing is about this, so an assassin comes and tries to assassinate Keenan Ivory Wayne's in the night. Uh, and it turns into this big fight. Um, and that whole scene is shot well like it's done well the the blast has some sort of unremarkable cgi for the time or whatever yeah but it doesn't have what you noted last time which is sort of seven different shots of the same explosion yeah no thankfully yeah it was uh they were comfortable with him diving out of the way that he did um and that was uh you know it's it's good on that sense but again that had sort of the because it wasn't Steven Seagal, it had a little bit of energy where you weren't sure if he was going to survive that fight yeah. or not. And that was something that's interesting and something that I think, uh, I mean, I know we'll never, we'll never stoop to the level of reviewing films that aren't done by Steven Seagal. But if you look at something like Fast and Furious, whenever uh, uh, The Rock versus, uh, what's his face? Vin Diesel, Vin Diesel fight. It's basically two mountains fighting each other and you're never sure how this thing is going to actually Play out, although you know the rocks are going to win because the rock is just like a foot taller than the other guy. <laughs> but um, so, anyways, uh, they try to kill King Ivory Waynes. They try to kill Steven Seagal. Two of them recover very gracefully. Steven Seagal makes some time. <laughs> My favorite line in the movie is Steven Seagal comes over to King Ivory Waynes, ostensibly to tell King Ivory Waynes that he was also someone just tried to kill him, sees that King Ivory Waynes. Uh, house has just been blown up and his first thing is the first thing he finds is all the deer penis powder that was not Damn. burned in the fire and says oh you fucking pussy you you took my advice for allergies <laughs> and then he says in a whole bunch of dialogue that is completely off screen he says hey I don't think those CDs got caught in the blast can I borrow them as one would ask another friend, can they borrow some music? Is hey, I see a pile of CDs. Can I just take them? Yeah. He, there, he does. Yeah. This is an example of like when you're talking about a uh, tone, or even more specifically, like uh, uh, Seagal's uh, awkward and ultimately failed attempt at like being a comedic actor. Like the fact that he's zinging him with all these like just bad one-liners in the wake of. Uh, pretty serious plot point and even more specifically just like you know something, his apartment's some, ruined yeah, some bad, like something, <laughs> something really bad happened to his partner and he's just like hey <gasps> apartment oh. got fucked up eh dummy he <laughs> says like, he says to a guy apartment. who's renting like a, a two or three bedroom apartment in the middle of Brooklyn he says I can't believe you live in this shithole <laughs> and then you know cut to next scene and it's just 
It seems very un- in- insensitive. Yeah. But yeah, there's... Yeah. Yeah, I don't think insensitive or sensitivity is a big Seagal thing. Nope. Anyways, we need to skip over a whole bunch of stuff because we've spent so much time on uh, so many different things. Steven Seagal kills one of my favorite actors, S. Tobbs or Stephen Tobolowsky. Yes, he does. Uh, in he uh, does get a very showy scene though. Yeah, he does. Don't make what did me you call do him? this in a house. D. Tobbs. Yeah, I wonder S. what Tobbs Seven. S. Tobbs Seven. Yeah, I wonder what he thought about that movie. Probably not much. But yeah, it again gets that sort of. Uh, I mean, there is a there's an online video. There's of him a lengthy describing, YouTube yeah. clip about it. Really, Tobolowsky talks for about really? six minutes about because that was the oh. first that was the first scene they shot. Uh, they shot, and apparently the producers, the director, came up to Tobolowsky and said, "Look, Stephen Skull's going to come over to you and say, I don't want my character to kill you in don't this scene because I him. feel like my character because Seagal had just gotten into Buddhism." And it was like, I don't want my character, I don't want to do violence anymore in this thing. Which is why, in the beginning of the film, he says, I don't do violence anymore. And then he kills three people on site with a razor blade. Anyways, Tobolesky says that he had to convince Steven Seagal to say, uh, to realize that, like, this is, my character is so fucked up that this is actually a release that you're doing. You're, yep. This is a net good for the world by shooting my character. Blah, 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 blah. This is also the film... Where one of the anecdotes from set is King Ivory Waynes was waiting for Steven Seagal to show up one time uh, because he's always late for his shoots. And Steven Seagal said, sorry, I'm late. I just finished reading the greatest uh, script I've ever read. King Ivory Waynes said, oh, my God, who who wrote it? Steven Seagal says, I did. He, ah. he did. Yeah. Ah. So, I mean, this is definitely a significant film in the Steven Seagal franchise just because there are so many different things stories from it and it didn't launch anybody's career (laughs) yeah no i was gonna say like i guess part of the reason why i'm dwelling so much on the front half of this movie is the back half is just i don't know it felt like it's just oh they had something there and then it just fell apart the first 20 minutes of this film are great and it just they keep wasting it the longer it goes on and the longer it goes on and it's it's too bad but like what i mean what else do we jump to after I don't even know, man. Like, this movie is just, like, it just devolves into something that it just shouldn't have devolved into. It was, like, once Tobolowsky and this whole murder in the church gets involved, like, I'm just, like, God damn it. This is too far now. And, like, I know it's not going back. I mean, at that point, it basically kind of, like, morphs into uh, Above the Law. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I felt. And it was just, like, Oh, we had a good thing going here, and now we're back to above the law, basically. You know what was actually a weird scene? The scene where we get the line about Glimmerman, uh, when Brian Cox is hanging out with the, the... It was a billionaire guy, right? Yeah. And, like, it was kind of like a weird, almost like a setup to a swingers party, because he's in the pool, and he's like, you've got to come in here. Like, the water's so nice or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and also, there's a lot of that ADR stuff that yeah. we were going on about where <laughs> there's clearly shots of him, like, reverse shot in the <laughs> pool talking to yeah. him. But he's clearly just treading water and yeah. not having a conversation. He's like, hey, man, come on in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I'm like, what's going on? Yeah, I didn't get that either. But then there's another scene, which is even funnier, where he's, like, swimming away from him. Yeah. 
But you also hear him doing more ADR lines. Yeah. <laughs> swimming yeah. away. Yeah. Is this like, is this a sinister backstory or is this yeah. a, a homosexual subplot that was cut out? It's yeah. like, what's happening? I'm not going to lie. That would have made it pretty hot. This movie was uh, uh, very man heavy yeah. and not a whole lot of uh, anything beyond just uh, the Seagal, oh, Keenan, Ivory yeah. Way. There's and literally one woman in this right, film. Right. And it's his wife. And his wife has the most thankless role of yeah. just saying, hi, honey. How was your day? And he goes, oh, I got to go tell my kids their mom's fucking dead. <laughs> oh, sorry to hear that. And then she just shows up at the funeral. That's it. Anyway, Seagal sort of pieces together that Brian Cox has been fucking him over this whole time. And realizes that Brian Cox is the one who's orchestrating these hits on his life. And we get to the only sort of late, late movie highlight, which is... um. Brian Cox is kidnapped by Steven Seagal and King Ivory Waynes. And there's this a scene that in like a good movie would have made <laughs> it a great movie. <laughs> like if this had been in training day, oh, it would have been done so well where Brian Cox is trying to trying his best to sort of play all of his cards to the best as a CIA operative or like sort of guy who sends out other yeah. CIA operatives on things. Um, CIA dispatcher. Dispatch. Hello, hello. This is CIA. Uh, if anybody's close to uh, Nicaragua and a uh, dictator, uh, yeah. please kill him. <laughs> What's on the car? Anyways, uh, so they kidnap him and they pull him out to underneath one of LA's many uh, famous freeways. And Steven Seagal immediately shoots Brian Cox on the foot because Brian Cox is not being very forthcoming with information that Steven Seagal needs. And there's a moment in this scene where you can tell the way it was originally written was Keenan Ivory Wayne's character wasn't supposed to believe what Steven Seagal was doing. And that's great because, again, it suggests that, like, not only is Seagal this character who isn't really selling his new Buddhist sort of lifestyle that he keeps telling other people because he keeps killing people as well as telling people that he's nonviolent and peaceful now. I didn't keep as good account as the death track in this one. It wasn't as much as uh, above the law, but I think we no, got, I so. think we got eight or nine. I think well, we the, the, the end show is pretty big depending yeah, on that. that's true. And this is another thing like how many deaths are caused because of the way Steven Seagal sets up the ending of this film. Yeah. Which is like probably nine in and of itself. Anyways, yeah. keeps he shoots uh, Brian Cox in the foot to try and get some uh, conversation going. And this is the only part where you really see the original dialogue shining through, which is Brian Cox is giving <laughs> these little exposition, little nuggets where he's just like, it's it's like of uh, you can see the way Brian Cox delivers these lines. You can see how this film was originally supposed to be, which was sort of like more stylized neo-noir sort of like you don't know what's going on, sort of blah, 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 blah. But Steven Seagal, in answer of that, just shoots him in the hand. And then Forget Brian Cox says, twice. Uh, basically gives up the entire plot of these things. And just, uh, if you would be such a, such a gentleman, just call me an ambulance. And uh, Steven Seagal says, you've got one good foot. <laughs> Hobble to the nearest hospital. Zing. <laughs> you know, one thing that's kind of interesting when we're talking about, uh, like, the the you know, the one good line of dialogue, the uh, comparisons to Seven, the comparisons to uh, Above the Law, comparisons to Stephen Tell's Life, whatever, whatever. Like, the only writing credits on the film are uh, this guy, 
Kevin Broadbin. And apparently this was the first film that he wrote. Seems about right. And it's just kind of like, it's a weird coincidence that it was so perfectly Seagal. Well, see, here's the thing is that I said it seems about right because I think Seagal is. Do you think he wrote it for him? I think what happened was this guy is a very uh, low confidence level screenwriter. He writes his first screenplay. And Seagal, I think, would in this situation see this as a chance to impose his dominance, his will on the script and basically take all the fang out of it and then put in his own Steven Seagal's kind of junky, I'm so cool, macho stuff that really. So you're assuming there was rewrites. Oh, of course. Are you kidding me? I mean, with that anic- the classic anecdote alone, it would imply that there's sure. rewrites. I mean, this guy swept his own ass about the way he writes scripts. Mm. I mean, you got to assume he was doing some of that stuff. And like, if you're a first time screenwriter, regardless of who it is, it's got to be pretty intimidating when someone's just like, I'm changing this because I think it's better this way. One what thing, are you going to do? One thing that has been mentioned, uh, I've seen a few times in articles about Seagal is that uh like he has sort of i guess uncredited writing on a lot of his film and i mean this might be exactly what you're talking about where like he might not have been like here i've rewritten pages uh 10 to 44 but he's like hey i've got some suggestions you'd better put them in or we're not paying you well see that's why i i i mean i don't normally go for that sort of like imdb trivia stuff where like they were talking about the whole keenan ivory wayne's thing but, like, I feel like that's almost explicitly about this movie, or else why would they put it in as, like, trivia about this movie? Mm. Like, it's like, Keenan Ivory Wayans, the way that I would interpret it is, he's on set, and then Seagal comes in and says, hey, I've rewritten the script. It's the best thing I've ever read. And Keenan Ivory Wayans just like, fucking hell, what have I got myself <laughs> into? So, I mean, especially since you're Keenan Ivory Wayans, who, I mean... Yeah, he's not like necessarily like an amazing writer, but he's written movies, and sure. I'd argue he's better at it than Stevens at all. Sure. And this should have been a launching pad for him into a different phase of his career, and it wasn't. And I think the main reason is the thing that drags this movie down is Seagal's acting, his lack of acting, his ADR, which he must have insisted on getting back in because, like, we're getting up into a point into the film where at the end of it, he is talking to another character who's attacking him. And at one point, he says, is that all you got? And the guy starts kicking him again, and Steven Seagal says, boring. But his lips don't move at all. Yeah. I, think, I just would, one thing that's come up a few times uh, in this uh, episode is this idea about, like, uh, how this should have been uh, a launching pad for Keenan Everyone's career. And I mean, like, if you look at it in the context of the, the trajectory of Seagal's career, Let's say, even though it's not my favorite, I'm more than willing to admit that Under Siege is certainly the, the peak of his career in terms of mm. like popularity, in terms of like the film that people know the most, in terms of like, yeah, even though it's a basically like a diehard ripoff. Like, I mean, it, it, it looks like the most impressive, most expensive. I mean, I think it's safe to say everything on the other side of that, which I mean, this was like, I think one or two or three films after that. I mean, it's just kind of going down, 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 down. And then you've got the DMX film and you've got, you know, and there's a few other scattered ones that aren't bad. But I mean, we're getting very close to straight to video territory. Yeah. And so, I mean, to to say that, like, this film did a lot of damage to his career uh, or was maybe a more, an accurate depiction of where his career was at, either one would be true. 
Yeah, and I mean, Keenan Ivory Wayans, I mean, there is also that whole thing where, I mean, his big claim to fame was in Living Color, right? Sure. So it's not like those things are ever guaranteed. Like, there's guys from SNL, there's guys from all those, you know, sketch comedy shows where they get their break, they usually do, and then they either do a Jim Carrey or they do a Keenan Ivory Wayans, so... <laughs> And I'm not saying like really? his post this work sort of speaks for itself that he he should have been a star like he he's definitely had his ups and downs and things like that but like this was a launching pad that I think was completely spoiled by the who who they got to attach which was yeah it was a bad choice to just be in a film with Steven Seagal which I think <laughs> generally be, yeah but I mean it I becomes apparent true. with the sort of uh, increasing projects like you look at this movie. It's on the downslope. Like, I mean, he got some names in Under Siege and even yeah. like we had Pam Greer and Sharon Stone and the other one. And I feel like his subsequent uh, bottoming out of co-stars is of this sort of understood knowledge that, hey, this guy's going to take this script and rip it apart. Like we're screwed. Yeah. So I feel like that in and of itself kind of affects, you know, who's going to guest on the yeah. on the film. Mm. There's, okay, there's one line that hasn't come up yet that I... Uh, must admit i forget the context that it was used in but it definitely stood out to me uh when he Which says scene was it in? Ah, that's the thing i totally forget but like i just heard it and i was like oh i gotta write this down okay he, he yells at someone now get your ugly white ass out of here and don't come back we covered like, that yeah Sagal saying that yeah yeah oh he my said god that really early in the film i think yeah which is to? why it was so confusing. I think he was just saying it to a random henchman. Type. No, yeah, he was saying it to the henchman that he sets up to kill the billionaire at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, it's also worth noting that again, the ambiguous uh, race trope that sure. he seems to be going through. I think this is probably a bottoming out of that, and that he can't even really commit to what he's trying to embody. Mm. Aside from just like. I don't know, I guess extremely involved white person who feels comfortable just sort of pretending that he's not white. I don't really know, but I get that it's going to be his thing. So sure. whatever. Oh, at this point, I think it's just kind of goes without saying. Yeah, he's basically a more interesting Rachel Dozel, which mm. I know we, we bring up every episode. But still, uh, okay, so the end of the the end of the movie Basically, he sets a, a billionaire to kill uh, a henchman and a henchman to kill a billionaire. And then in a very odd end of movie fight scene, he sets up these two people to kill each other. And then Keanu Wayne says, shouldn't we just wait for them to kill each other? And this is in the hotel, right? Yeah, this hey. is in the hotel. Steven Seagal says something about how, no, they should go in there now. And. King Ivory Wayne says, uh, do you not live and listen to your own advice? And Steven Seagal says, uh, I guess sometimes I'm my own worst critic or something like that. And then busts Whoa. through the door and ignoring the really puts because the, he had two groups of people who were really on the verge of killing each other at each other's necks. They'd set up sort of the perfect trap. And then he goes in there and starts shooting people <laughs> in a very dramatic way, which very much implicates him in any sort of internal affairs investigation which has been dogging him through this entire film whereas it's been dogging him throughout his entire career it yeah. seems but it was so, <laughs> it's such a weird choice that he chooses to burst in this door after he set up sort of the perfect trap of yeah. these two characters 
and their henchmen all killing each other. Not to mention, I know we've kind of beat the dead horse, but like he's also a peaceful guy, right? <laughs> like he's supposed, like ideally, if he was what he supposedly practices, what he preaches, is he'd love it if they just sat back and yeah. did what they were gonna do. Have we already covered? Uh, I guess, especially the like, the, I think it was less significance because of this whole Tibetan Buddhism thing, like the kind of like really heavy-handed, super simplistic, like karmic significance of him saving the billionaire son, and then the billionaire son kind of hooks him up later on in the film to get information from the billionaire. I think karmic significance in general is just something that Steven Seagal would be into. Yeah, like, you're I forget at. the nitty gritty of that. It's that like he like. He gets information from the kid or something that helps yeah. him get the upper hand on the billionaire. And it's the-, the economy of characters. The billionaire puts his son, his, his stepson, into the care of a nursing home because he can't have the kid sort of realizing that the reason why things were going shitty. Basically, was- mental illness is hard for this movie to pin down. And yeah. really, they just wanted to phone it in at a certain yeah. point. So fuck it, put him in a nursing home. That's how we do. Do it. Woo. Yeah. We all just simultaneously dabbed. Mm. Yep. Anyways, the end of the movie. Who uh is It's a mess, but I mean it's a mess. so is It's uh, Keen Ivory Wayne saying, Ah, oh, you motherfucker, I don't want to see you for the next ten days because I got shot in the arm during this thing that you perfectly set up and then ruined by yourself by telling everybody to shoot each other all at once. Anyways. I think that when we actually sort of boil down to the ending of this movie, it kind of misses the point just because we're kind of losing what was the original plot of this movie, which is the source serial killer thing. Which is resolved two thirds of the way through the film. Yeah. And then I was just sort of like, when that got resolved, I was like, okay, is that the end of the movie? <laughs> and then it kind of kept going. That's and... not how Seagal works. No, because he just not. He pulls back the layers like a big stinky onion. Yeah, I don't want to do seven again. No, I don't even want to do eight. No, what if we did eight and a half? Oh shit! He's no Fellini. Fellini. <laughs> <laughs> As we race to the punchline. <laughs> Speaking of Fast and the Furious. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, okay, so. Let's do it. Let's do the obligatory rating of this movie. I'll start with a bit of a, a an arch rating. First half hour, 7 out of 10. Last hour, like 3 out of 10. That's my rating. I think that if the movie delivered on what that first half hour was setting up, I would have been into it. I would have really, really liked what it was going for because at the very least, like an entertaining buddy cop movie is surprisingly difficult to nail. And I felt that they at least had like a comfortable chemistry with each other. But then Seagal's ego took over at a certain point, And I think it was right around that church scene. And uh, I had to bail. I had to bail just in terms of where I was at uh, with getting involved in the movie. So, uh, yeah, I'm giving it a half rating. First third, pretty solid. Second two thirds, not so much. Michael? You know, like... The weird thing about this movie is that, like, I think it is, like, I don't want to say one of his worst films, but I guess in terms of, like, like his career when it wasn't straight to video, like, it's a bad one, for sure. Like, I mean, uh, I, I, I could not defend it in terms of, like, film craft, acting, et cetera, et cetera. But, like, 
I find it really enjoyable, which like you did recommend it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is like, like as bad as it is. And like the more that we talk about it, I will say it's, it's certainly a little bit less enjoyable, but like, I don't know there was something about it. Like, I think I probably enjoyed it watching it now more than I did rewatching above the law. It's my favorite of the three. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would say just based on that, uh, I'd give it like a, a 6.8. Ooh, pitchfork style. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give this a big old would recommend. Um, I'm going to say this for a few reasons. One, the first 20 minutes of this film just misses the mark of sure. like being a good, competent sort of like police thriller. That's interesting. The last two thirds of this film are just good, bad movie. Yeah. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of things we didn't cover. There are rubber uh, metal bars that people are pushed through that like flop in slow motion to make it more obvious that yeah. this was not thought out. I get what you're saying when you said we miss covering it, but also those are just like funny, bad movie non sequitur moments. But this is what I'm saying is like the first 20 minutes. It's the first time that even considering uh, Contract to Kill, this, uh, the first 20 minutes of Glimmer Man have survived the best out of anything that, sure, sure, had, sure. that he's done thus far. Yeah. Like, it was done in 1996. Six. Yeah. Uh, 20 years later, it's still, like, it holds up better yeah. than most. And yeah. it's because probably it deals with a really dark subject, which is sort of in vogue right now. Um, who doesn't like darkness doesn't like darkness it's a it's a very judeo-christian crime spree that he goes through those are all themes that were coming back into style around the time that hannibal sort of uh, did all these super stylized crime scenes and things like that like it it, it kept me sort of wrapped for the first 20 minutes because i was like i don't know how they're gonna fuck this up yeah and then the last half of the movie really really surprise uh yeah the last two-thirds of the movie really does it but uh, I, I say it is, if you like Seagal, it is a must watch. Uh, if you like bad movies, it's, it's a, it's a must watch. If you, that's about all I can recommend. Yeah, that's pretty solid. I think that's about as good as Seagal's going to get at this point. It's a good bad movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, next week I'm submitting the, uh, the next suggestion. Uh, I'm making an executive order, which I feel is very brazen at this time. But since we're on this sort of uh, tip of him going on his career trajectory down, mm-hmm. uh, I kind of want to save like the really sort of peak Seagal ones for like a little later, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I'm suggesting we do the uh, Seagal and DMX vehicle yes. exit wounds next. This movie is going to be really good. And anyway, go watch it. That is exactly what I'm hoping for, yeah. which is why I'm submitting hey, exit dogs. wounds. As my next entry. What say you, friends? Yeah. I would well, say that we're going to have to be checking each other's back at the end of the uh, podcast for exit wounds. Nailed it. We should just end the podcast right now. Yeah. <laughs>